Would you join me in praying again as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, we have come to meet with you. As we say many times, if we've come for any other reason, we'll miss it. We need you this morning. We need you to move. We need you to speak. We need to see your power, your glory. We need for you to do your transforming work. God, may we simply come with open hands. We've come to meet with you. We recognize that you are king and we are not. May your will be done this morning. May your kingdom come, not ours. May you be glorified. May we be different as we leave these doors than we were when we walked in because we've met with the king. We can't not be different when we've come from the presence of God. So just come and do your work. Do what only you can do. We trust you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So as my wife so gently pointed out earlier, we've been in the book of Mark for a little while now. Uh, I didn't write it, so I don't, I can't be blamed for how long it takes us to make it through it. Uh, you can talk to Mark about that one one day in the future. Uh, Mark, the book of Mark, uh, is Peter's account, uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, his recollection of his eyewitness account with Jesus. Uh, Mark was kind enough to write it down and edit it together for Peter, but this is Peter's account. And so really what we're doing is walking through Jesus' right-hand man, Peter, telling us the story of his friend and king, Jesus. And so we're in Mark chapter 12, uh, where Jesus is in the, the last week of his earthly ministry leading up to his death. Uh, and then the good news, his resurrection afterwards. And Jesus is in the temple courts teaching, and we've looked at the last couple weeks, uh, there was groups of people that would come up and they were asking Jesus questions to try to test him and, and trap him. Uh, one man comes, we believe, genuinely asking a question, but basically Jesus has been being publicly grilled on his theology. Well, what about this situation? Well, what happens in this situation? Uh, many deviously trying to, to trap him in his words and divide the crowd. But Jesus has answered so well uh, that the last verse that we ended on last time said, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Either because they realized we can't trap this guy or even the genuine ones were just like, we're in the presence of someone different. And they dared not ask him any more questions. And so Jesus takes his turn. And we're going to look this week at two teachings uh, that Jesus teaches following right on the footsteps of these other questionings. Uh, with one, I believe he's going to kind of sum up everything he's just said. And then he calls the people to attention. So let's take a look at these. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. So Jesus asked this question as he taught in the temple complex. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. You ever read this account before? You ever move right on because you have no idea what he's talking about? I have. We don't live in a culture that esteems David like they did. We don't live in a culture that's looking forward to the Messiah. And so it's easy to read this and go, not for me. 
and just move on. And in part, that's true. Jesus was speaking to a specific culture at a specific time. But to understand what he was saying, to understand how they would have heard it, can kind of enlighten for us uh, where Jesus was coming from in this. There, there's almost, if, if you remember over the last couple of weeks, the, the times that they were trying to entrap Jesus, Jesus is kind of turning the tables. There's almost kind of a, hey, you like riddles? I have a riddle. Oh, you like tricky questions? How about this tricky question? Because here's the thing, back in those days, you didn't get any higher than David and Moses. Those were the pillars of the Jewish faith, of Jewish life. Their names wouldn't even be said loudly. They're kind of whispered in hushed tones because that's Moses and David. They represent the heights of the nation of Israel. They represent the foundation of everything that they said and did. And what we've just seen is in probably a 20-minute time span in Jesus' real life, he summed up Moses' teachings. Yeah, everything Moses said, those 613 laws, I have two new ones that sum up all the law and the prophets. I've summed up Moses, and now he looks to David. See, the people were taught that the Messiah, when he came, would be David 2.0. They weren't really looking forward. It was kind of a looking backward thing. When the Messiah comes, he's going to be just like David, this, this warrior king who gave them military and political power. And Jesus was challenging their assumption. You're looking back to, as if God's going to lead us back to the good old days. God's going to repeat himself. They would refer to the Messiah as the son of David, meaning one that comes after David and is just like David. One who looks like David, acts like David, comes in the same way that David came. And Jesus goes, actually, when you look at the scriptures, David, this pinnacle of Jewish, of just Judaism, he actually looked to the Messiah and he wasn't going, this guy, just like me, he's my son. He instead was bowing down and he says, the Messiah's coming, he's my Lord. For them, it would be, it's unthinkable that David would bend a knee to anyone besides God himself. And he says, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, the Messiah, be seated at my right hand, which, again, to be seated at the right hand of God, they couldn't even fathom. If you would have said, God told me that I'm going to be seated at his right hand, you would have been stoned to death back then. And they're saying that's what David says about the Messiah. What he was really doing was he was challenging everything you think about the coming kingdom is backwards. Everything you've been taught to look for and expect is old news. God doesn't repeat himself. He is doing a new thing. The Messiah that comes will be so far beyond David and anything David did that David actually bowed a knee and called him my Lord. They would have heard this, and maybe they didn't understand everything Jesus was saying, but they would have gone, oh, that's a big one. You, you can't just do that. You can't just say David is underneath. Like They would have held their breath. It says that they were listening with delight, almost like what's going to happen next. Jesus was challenging them. The kingdom you're looking for is not the kingdom God has called for. Don't miss it. 
because you're looking in the wrong place. You see, he says there that the scribes had been teaching them this, a little bit about the scribes. The scribes were the lawyers of their time. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. We said a scribe is another way of saying a lawyer. But here's the thing, not a lawyer like we think of today. The way we think of a lawyer is someone who goes into a courtroom, typically behind closed doors, and they, they're only there if, if someone's been offended, if someone's been hurt. They're there to defend or to prosecute. But basically, in our lives, most of us, if you're on the right side of the law, how much time do you spend thinking about the law? None. Most of us don't walk around every day wondering what's the law, what's the rules, what's the... If we see a cop and we're heading down the highway, we think, how fast am I going? You know, and we begin to slow down because, uh-oh, am I, am I about to cross the law? But unless we're in those kind of situations, we don't think about the law. Most of us don't ever think about lawyers. And hopefully we never have to. But in their day, all of life, all of culture, all their government, all their religion was based on a law. It was what they talked about as they sat and ate, as they walked through the streets, they would discuss the law. It was always in front of them because their entire culture, family, and religion was based on the law. The Torah, the first five books of the, the Jewish Bible called the books of the law. But most of the people were illiterate. Most of the people couldn't even read it for themselves. And so they needed men, lawyers, experts in the law, scribes, to interpret the law for them. These scribes were essentially given the responsibility to interpret for the people so they knew how to live with one another, so they knew how to interact with God, and so they knew what to expect from God. And Jesus was calling the scribes out on the carpet and going, what they've been teaching you is wrong. They've been teaching you to look back as if God is going to do the same thing again. Put Israel back on the map. Throw Rome out of here, and all of a sudden nobody can stand against the military and political might of Israel. This is what they were expecting to happen through the Messiah. And Jesus said, they're, they're pointing you in the wrong direction. These men that you trust, again, they couldn't read it for themselves. They just had to trust that what they were saying was true, and Jesus was going, watch out. Because if they miss this one, who's on top, David or the Messiah? If they miss this one, they miss everything. Watch out. The scribes were teaching people to look for an earthly kingdom, political power reigning over their earthly neighboring kingdoms. Jesus was calling people to look for a heavenly spiritual kingdom. The, the three teachings that we've looked at over the last three weeks kind of all center around this. The Pharisees came and asked Jesus a question about taxes. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Because in doing so, we're recognizing his authority. But isn't it supposed to be Israel first? Aren't we supposed to throw off anybody because we're God's chosen nation? And, and there was this nationalistic pride coming up. The Pharisees were teaching an earthly kingdom, one kingdom over another, Israel over others on this earth, political power, military power. And Jesus said, actually, it's about a spiritual kingdom where God is king and has authority everywhere. All authority belongs to him. You're missing it if you're looking for it in this nation and throwing off that nation. Instead, all authority, whether Caesar's or Israel's, belongs to God. Don't miss it. He's doing a new thing. 
The Sadducees come, uh, remember these were the guys who don't believe in a resurrection or angels or anything like that. It, all you got is this life. When you die, you're dead. And so they come and they say, okay, so this guy marries a woman. He dies. He has six brothers, one by one. They all marry her and die, marry her and die, marry her and die. In the end, whose is she, Jesus? In your resurrection, Jesus, who gets the girl? And Jesus' whole response to them was, you're focused on this life and what you can get? Jesus said, I'm teaching about a kingdom that is built on resurrection and new life, on God doing new things. You're going, unless we can understand it here, like life now is the, the lens through which we view eternity, and Jesus says, you got it backwards. Believing that God wins in the end, that we get resurrection and new life, should be the lens with which we view today. That should be what informs today. They were looking for what's happening now and how do we get what we want now. And Jesus says, it's not about today. It's not about this life, but that life. Then the scribe comes, and again, we believe genuinely coming to Jesus and saying, what's the greatest commandment? It, it's too hard. There's too much. Sum it up for me. Give me one to focus on. Maybe I can handle that. Because he was viewing life through a lens of a kingdom based on complex laws and carrying on things the way they've always been. And Jesus gives them a kingdom based on the rule of love. You know what? Forget all the other laws, just these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a new thing. It's not about how do we continue the traditions. It's looking forward to God doing a new thing. And that new thing is not on this earth. It, it will work itself out on this earth, but it's not about earthly power and authority as they were thinking of kingdoms. Jesus was trying to kind of shake them and wake them up and go, don't miss it. We're not going back to the good old days. God is moving forward and this new thing will be like nothing you've ever seen on this earth. Let me read it again. So Jesus asked this question as he taught in the temple complex. How can the scribes say the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can, can the Messiah be his son? It's not about this earthly kingdom. Israel was in danger, and not, we know the end of the story, in fact, would miss it. Because Jesus didn't stand up and throw off Rome, they said, this can't be the guy we're looking for, and they missed it. It's not about Israel being on top. And, and here's the thing. This is just a little bunny trail. We have a lot in common with Israel. They had this nationalistic pride. We're the, the nation of God, and it's about us being on top. And if we're not careful... In America, we can do the same thing. Christianity is about keeping America in our ways on top, and we can miss it. The story's not about us. It wasn't about the nation of Israel. God said, I'm going to use the nation of Israel, and then will come a point when I'm going to branch off to all nations, and they missed it. They thought they were the center of the story, and if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. I am not in the center of the story. America is not in the center of the story. The king is in the center of the story. His kingdom come, his will be done. Amen? Amen? Jesus was trying to tell them, your walk with God is not about power and authority as we understand it. Don't miss it. One of the problems with this uh, today in our culture, it, it, we're very, we have a tendency to miss this. 
We have a tendency to become focused on my life and what's happening today and how that felt to me and my pain, and, and we were avoiding it. One of the only places, there's only two places that I could think of where we're reminded to lift our eyes off of today and focus on eternity. That's in our times with him and in our times together. Both of those values are decreasing right now. In our Christian culture, time together is good, but we really don't need it. You got something else coming up? Go do that instead. Church can wait. And here's the thing, I'm not advocating church attendance and we have to be here every single Sunday. I don't play that game. I don't take attendance. I have no idea what our numbers are, none at all, and that's an intentional step. But what scares me is to see it across the board, people just becoming more and more disconnected because time with each other is optional. And in fact, what we find in the scripture in Hebrews chapter 10 is a strong warning not to forsake gathering together. Not necessarily for this one hour on a Sunday morning. They didn't have that. But these times where we gather together to encourage one another, and it says all the more as the day approaches, looking at eternity and going, we gotta be, we gotta be alert, guys, wake up. Hey, don't get stuck focusing on, yeah, you had a, a rough week at work. Don't get stuck there. God is still moving. Get your eyes up. And in our times with him, which again are becoming just decreasing in priority because life is so busy. I hear from people all the time, I just didn't have time to open my Bible or to pray today. Most of them, if I would ask, I mean, yeah, I was on social media multiple times. I was allowing the world to pour into me, no problem, but I just didn't have time with Jesus. One of the beauties, when we gather together and we sing, singing is one aspect of worship, but when we sing and in all the forms of worship, they force us to lift our eyes and focus on him. To sing about his goodness, even in the midst of our pain. What he's doing, how he is king, even if I can't see it. It focuses us to lift our eyes, but if we're not careful, that will get crowded out. That will be something, yeah, when it's convenient, I do it. But when it's not convenient, I really don't need it. And we become more and more focused on this world, this life, power and authority and what we can get here. And just like Jesus was warning them, we will miss it if we're not careful. So Jesus then goes on to call the people to attention, to give them a warning. He also said in his teaching, starting in verse 38, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplace, the front seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and they say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher punishment. So Jesus not only goes, hey guys, like they're missing it. What they're teaching you is actually backwards. They're teaching you earthly kingdom. I'm trying to call you to a spiritual kingdom. He's not going, oops, they're, they're trying really hard. They just kind of messed this one up. He also sees to their heart and he goes, the reason that they're pointing your eyes towards this earth is because that's what they're trying to do is get what they can get in this earth. Some of the things that he mentions there, they, they go around in long robes. This was their way of being seen everywhere they went. They would have robes that no one else could afford and they would, there would be certain, the way they had was these robes and these like prayer shawls that they would use. There were certain fabrics and certain um, designs that only certain people could wear. And so you could see them in a crowd. If you saw black and white stripes on their headdress, that was a Pharisee. 
and you could pick them out like nothing. They, they had very distinguished clothes, and it was always better than everyone else because they wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be honored. Look at what he says. They wanted greetings in the marketplace. Oh, rabbi, thank you for coming. No, 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 you go first, rabbi. We'll wait. And there was legitimately a, a bowing and a groveling that these men, it's not only like, oh, the people cast it on them. They were looking for it. They wanted the front seats in the synagogues, the places of honor in banquets. Now it would be kind of like taking the back row. Those are the first ones to fill up. But they wanted to be closest to the action. They wanted everyone to see them sitting in the front. I am closest to God. I want it more than you. I deserve the best seats. If you went into a party that someone was having and you sat in one of the scribe's seats, they would legitimately come up and go, uh, excuse me, this is an honored seat. It's for me, not for you. Get out. Do you know who I am? They had to be referred to as special titles and they would have, uh, oh man, it's escaping me now. There's a long word for it, but essentially they would have these special boxes that they would tie onto their foreheads and onto their hands with scripture inside of it. And there's a Jewish word that would go with it. It comes from the Old Testament where God says, bind my word to your hands and to your heads. He didn't mean physically, but they would do it because then they would walk around. Oh, it's, it's so hard to be a servant of God and look at how heavy the weight of his word is. And, and people would just heap honor on them for it. And listen to Jesus' teaching. These will receive harsher punishment. Listen, you don't miss it. You in the crowd, you average person that can't read the law for yourself, you're in danger of missing it, and I'm calling you to be careful. But I'm also telling you, those who teach this, you will be punished even more harshly. Because you know what you do. Because you would rather be honored in this life than honored in the next. Power, position, authority, celebrity as the world sees it, that's what was driving these scribes. And Jesus was calling them to this, and I think he's calling us to the same thing today. Before you listen to their teaching, examine their lives. Listen, for all of us here, when you sign up to teach the word of God, you sign up to live under a microscope. What you're telling people is not only think how I think, but live how I live. And we're told in James, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. He's talking to good, godly men and women. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Jesus was saying the same thing. Beware of these teachers who speak one thing and live another, who speak about devotion to God, yet live in devotion to themselves. Beware of what they teach. And he says the same thing. First of all, again, for us, if you are teaching in any form or fashion, be careful. Does your life match your words? Because we have to be aware, as James said, that we will be judged more strictly. There is a responsibility that comes with a platform. Jesus wouldn't have understood platform back then. I mean, they didn't use that word, but now it's a very common word. 
We all have platforms and brands and people are trying to, to put things out on social media to get bigger followings and whatever else because we're platforming. Platform comes with responsibility. You see, one of the dangers of social media isn't just that you'll be taken in by someone who's posting and, and teaching things that are counter to scripture, though that is a real danger. But also many of us, if we're not careful, we put ourselves in the place of teachers. We use social media to tell other people how they should live. We use social media to tell people what God thinks of them. We use social media to tell people how they should parent and, and how they should view this situation or that political character or whatever else. Social media becomes us with a platform, but platforms come with responsibility. Some of us have put ourselves in the place of teachers, just using social media, using the tools the world gives us, and we have to be aware that to take hold of that is to agree I will be judged more strictly. There's a responsibility that comes with it. We are drawn to emulate those with the largest followings, with the, the wisest comments, or excuse me, wittiest comments, with the sharpest tongues. Those are the ones we're drawn to. Those are the ones that we begin to shape our thoughts after because look, it works for them. What we must learn to do is prioritize character over charisma. There are some incredibly likable smart sounding, easy to follow and connect with people, does their life have the character to bear it? They can, they can put sentences and thoughts together quickly and concisely and we're drawn in, but are they men and women of character? We must learn to prioritize character over competency. But, but he's just such a good leader and he just knows so much about this topic. But she has eight kids and they're all perfect. I know because I saw her Instagram story. I got to do whatever she says. I got to follow that. We, we are easily drawn in by competency, by people who can do something well. And we just kind of follow blindly if we're not careful. Never asking the question, but are they a man or woman of character? Can their life hold up under the weight of the platform they have? Character over capability. They've just got all the tools that I want. Character over content. But they're saying the things that I think need said. And so we start to excuse character flaws. We start to make excuses for them, but at least, look, they're getting the job done. They're saying those things, they're whatever. And we begin to align ourselves with people that have different values than us. Or, that, that's kind of an intentional thing we have to be careful of. Oftentimes, we align ourselves with people we have no idea what their values are. But we repost, we retreat, we begin to shape our lives after some of these things. Be that Christian or not, when we truly have no idea the character of the one that's leading. We begin to submit ourselves to them and to form our lives like them when we don't know the character of their lives. And it is such a dangerous thing. It is so dangerous to prioritize these things from a distance. 
we have an issue uh, in our Western evangelical culture, and it's two words that should never, ever go together but do regularly, celebrity pastor. The two words were never, the, the word pastor literally means shepherd, a stinky guy out in a field working with sheep. And to think that that would ever be put together with celebrity, I don't think ever crossed Jesus' mind. But now it's a regular thing. We can name numbers of them. These celebrity pastors. What's the thing we all know about celebrity pastors if you follow one long enough? They fall. I hope they don't all. There's some that I really like and I'm rooting for. But the thing that we have seen, especially over the past five years, again and again and again and again, is they fall. They don't have the character to hold up the weight of the platform. And when they fall, who falls with them? All their followers. Their churches crumble. People who don't even live in the same country as them walk away from the faith. Because if they couldn't get it right, what chance do I have and they turn and walk away, and you go, what is happening? We have tried to align ourselves to follow people who we can never and will never know, and for some reason we're surprised when they fail and let us down. There was meant to be a relationship between receiving teaching and leadership and influence from someone and the ability to watch the life that they lived. It's a relatively new phenomenon, probably what, in the 60s, I would guess, is when like TV preaching started and some of this kind of stuff, and it's just escalated since then, to be able to sit under someone's teaching and under the authority of their words, but not to be able to see their life, not to be able to sit and have a meal with them and their family. What kind of man or woman is this really? to just see the best someone has to offer prettied up and put a filter on, this is my life with my kids, ain't it great, but never get to get coffee with them and actually see, oh, they do yell at their kids. Boy, they they do snap and are short at times. We live in this completely disconnected world and it is so dangerous. Listen to why Paul tells people they should continue on in the things that he taught. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 Speaking about when he was with them before, he says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because, we had become, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and our hardships, brother, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses and so is God of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. This church was starting to get scared by, some people were saying, man, the end times are here, and maybe we already missed it, and and Paul's going, look, no, 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 don't walk away. Remember the things that I taught you, and he doesn't just go, because they're right, and I was more clever than anyone else. He says, remember the things I taught you. Why? Because you saw how I lived. I walked humbly with you, blamelessly and righteously. Listen, if he didn't know them and he wrote those things, we'd be like, gag, this guy. 
Listen to how boastful he is, how proud he is. But what backs it up? You saw it. You saw how I lived with you. Now, don't forget what I taught. The way that he walked with them, the character that he lived out before them was the reason they should put any weight into the things that he taught. He taught the same thing to Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Normally we stop right there. Young people can do things too. True, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone will see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, your life and your doctrine go hand in hand. You cannot lift up one and neglect the other. You will lose both yourself and all those who follow you. Your character has to hold up to the weight of your words. If it doesn't, the whole house comes crumbling down. So before he tells them, read the scripture and preach and teach, he first says, set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. If people don't see it in you, they have no business following you, Timothy. Humility is the greatest qualifying mark of character. How do I know if this, this person has the kind of character I'm looking for? Is someone worth following? Are they humble? Not just in their words. Again, this is a have to look at somebody's whole life. Do they walk in humility? A lot of people think humility is just beating yourself up. Coming up here and going, I'm the worst. Like, that's not humility. Humility is a proper understanding of your relationship with your God. I am not the worst because he says I'm not the worst. He actually calls me son. And I have gifts and talents and abilities that glory to God, I can be confident in. And I can work with boldly, not because, man, I'm something, because these are gifts my father gave me. And if somebody comes up and goes, whoa, you're really good at that, praise to the Lord, because I was nothing until he found me. And now I get to work with the king. That is, that is true humility. Again, you didn't hear Paul going, I came and it was bad, but hey, God's good. Like He said, man, I walked humbly and blamelessly before you to the glory of God. Humility is a proper understanding. It comes from our eyes being fixed on him and not on ourselves. Everything I have good belongs to him, came from him, is used for him, all the screw-ups, yep, those are me. Those I take credit for. And then he gives me grace and forgiveness and we move forward again. It is about his greatness, not ours. His fame, not ours. His kingdom come, his will be done, not my own. One of the greatest uh, scriptural examples of humility that I can think of, I come back to it regularly, John the Baptist there was this dispute that arose in the book of John that we'll look at where the, the, some of these Jews came and they went, hey, Jesus has a bigger crowd. 
your master is not anything anymore. And there was starting to be like this contention between John's disciples, the ones that were following John. They were going, aren't you going to speak up for yourself? Like, come on. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. John responded, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. Let me stop there. He's saying, look, Jesus has a crowd because Jesus earned a crowd. People are flocking to Jesus because they're his bride and he is meant to be their groom. And it's a beautiful thing. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John didn't look at it and go, oh, competition. He said, this is the whole point. I can, I can sit back and put my feet up now because it's about him being lifted up, not me. He must increase and I must decrease. This joy of mine is now complete because people are praising Jesus and not me. All the crowds that were coming and chanting my name are now chanting his and I've never been happier. If this is not the heart of the leader you follow, run. Myself included. If you are following a man or woman, if you're putting yourself under their authority, if you're listening to their teaching, and this is not their heart of their life, run. If you can't watch their life, there's people I watch, uh, there's pastors that I follow, their podcasts and on YouTube and different things, and they have good things to say. And again, man, I'm, I'm hoping these guys don't fall, but I also hold what they say open-handed. Because can their character hold up? The, the proof is in the pudding. They can teach it as forcefully and as eloquently as they like. But if their lives can't bear up under the weight, watch out. Jesus was telling the people back then, look at how the scribes live. Why would you listen to what they say? It's about bigger crowds, more people, more honor, more respect for themselves. Run from them. They will be punished more severely. Today, it's a little harder because we can't see the lives. We can't watch the lives. All we get to see is, man, they recorded seven different sermons on YouTube and they picked the best one and put that up there. They had seven services that weekend and they sat down and went, which one's the best one? Okay, let's put this one up there. All we get to see is the best version of them. We have to be careful. I have uh, one of the guys that, this isn't in my notes, um, one of the guys that has, has really been ministering to me lately is Matt Chandler, if you've ever... Um, followed any of his teaching. He's written books in a big church down in, in Dallas. Uh, and if you watch any of his videos on YouTube, it, it humbles my heart. He, he starts all of them by going, hey, I'm Pastor Matt. We've been praying a lot um, for this message. So thankful that you're tuning in. And then he, he turns and he, he throws a curveball that most people don't expect. He goes, but listen, this message is not supposed to be your relationship with God. We hope it's supplemental. We hope it's helpful. But you're meant to be in a local church under the supervision of local elders who can walk with you through life. So if you want this sermon to be anything beyond that, this isn't for you. Praise the Lord. Like Again, that's humility. From what I can see of Matt, 
Kent, because I don't know him. We've never had lunch together. But there's some of those things I look and I go, okay, there's signs of hope. And so I listen to Matt. And I hold what he says open-handed. I run it all through the scripture and going, Lord, is, is that from you? Is that what you want? I talk with, with men that I can sit and examine their lives and I go, hey, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? And we discuss and we work through it together because them I know and I respect. When we begin to divorce the way someone lives, the character of their life from the teaching and the influence that we give them, we're on a dangerous, dangerous path. Again, myself included. So I'm gonna ask the music team to come up and, and we're going to close our service uh, by singing an old hymn, How Great Thou Art, because as I was preparing this message, that song just kept going through my head. As I was thinking about uh, John the Baptist and the humility that men and women of character have, how great thou art just kept coming to mind. So, so again, my prayer is that as we uh, stand and sing together, our eyes are lifted from this earthly kingdom onto the heavenly. That, that we begin to have, we've sang a couple of different songs about like a melody, you know, in our hearts, that how great thou art just begins to reverberate in our hearts. And when we, when we look at leaders and we're asking the question, is this someone I should follow or not, emulate or not, how great thou art comes out and do I see that in their life? If not... I don't care what they have to say, set it down and walk away. So would you stand? Uh, I'm gonna pray for us and then we will close uh, just singing this beautiful old hymn. Lord Jesus, we wanna be humble people. We wanna recognize humility in others when we see it. Uh, we don't want to follow those who are gonna be judged harshly uh, just because they're the ones up front or because they, they're smarter than us and so I guess we follow May you, through your Holy Spirit, God, lead us towards men and women of character that can speak into our lives. Men and women marked by humility. Lord, may we be men and women marked by humility, able to speak into the lives of others. We trust you, Holy Spirit, to bring discernment. If there are uh, some people that we're leaning on in our lives that, that we shouldn't be, would you give us wisdom and discernment, God, to walk away? Uh, if there are some things in our own lives, we're claiming one thing but living another, would you bring conviction through your Holy Spirit, God? May our walk match our talk. And may we be able to say that about those that we follow as well. God, just bring humility on us. May we see you high and lifted up. And may that be our message all day, every day. In Jesus' name, amen.